Hello and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host Hugh and today I'm joined by Zoe Chance from Yale School of Management. Zoe is a master in influence and persuasion and her research has been published in top journals as well as being covered in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, The Economist, all the biggies basically. She's worked with multiple Fortune 500 companies. Uh, Google has used her behavioral economics framework as a basis for their global food policy and she has previously marketed a $200 million segment of the Mattel brand at Barbie. So she knows better than most on how to influence behaviors inside a company and with their customers outside. So Zoe, you're very welcome to the IMI. Thank you so much. The IMI is awesome. <laughs> you guys rock. Well, thanks for the super masterclass. Um, can you give us the big idea of the session, the sort of the main message you wanted the audience to go away with? The big idea of the session is that when we're trying to influence people, we should be focused on their initial gut reaction much more than we actually are. And also think about influencing their behavior even more than we're thinking about influencing um, their mind or their preferences. So you referenced uh, System 1 and System 2, which is quite famous. Uh, it was in the Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow. For those who haven't heard it, can you explain it to the listeners that haven't heard of the concept? Yeah, and System 1, System 2 is so abstract, it's kind of hard to remember. So I like to use the analogy of the alligator and the judge. And the gator brain, system one, is the first responder, and it's fast, intuitive, unconscious, and automatic. And because it's unconscious, we don't notice that system one, this gator brain, is always lurking below consciousness, seeking opportunities, looking for threats. And it's that, the gator brain, that drives most of our decisions and most of our behavior. The system two, I use the analogy of the judge, is our conscious decision-making system, and it's slow, it's deliberate, it's rational, it weighs all of the available evidence, pros and cons, like hearing a case in a court, focused on only that one case until making a decision that's as objective as possible. Because that's the conscious one, we think that that's what we do more of the time, but that's just because we can't experience the unconscious one. And I bet you a lot of managers and leaders would be out there saying, yes, I'm a very rational person. I'm, I look at things logically. Yeah, he, he, a whole bunch of the questions at break and afterwards were people saying, yes, but aren't there types? And people telling me I'm more of a rational type. And I don't mean that we don't make rational decisions. It's just the gator brain system one is the first responder and the judge system two is the second guesser. So we all have that initial gut response before we weigh the evidence and, and the fact. You actually gave a great example during the masterclass of those judges um, and that they're the sort of rational people. Um, so they should be looking at every case logically. But what have you found? The judges base their decisions on whether they've had lunch. And in a study, so it wasn't my research. Yeah. It was some other researchers who looked at 1,100 parole decisions, um, Israeli judges deciding whether a prisoner should be released into society or go back to jail. And when the judges were refreshed at the beginning of the day or right after lunch, they would decide, they'd make the hard decision to send the prisoner back home and into society about two thirds of the time. But those decisions are difficult and 
it's fatiguing. They get You get mental fatigue making difficult decisions and you also just get hungry and your judge brain doesn't function very well anymore when you're fatigued and you're hungry and like right before lunch, these judges are sending every single prisoner back to jail because that's the easy decision and that's the gator brain decision. One of the, the big words, if we did a Google word cloud of your session, it would probably be laziness. <laughs> um, and I recently read a story of how sandwiches had taken, uh, taken over Britain and how it had been linked to productivity. But one of the young uh, pioneers of it was a guy called Roger Whiteside. And he had a business across the street that were selling sandwiches and he was selling sandwiches as well. He thought the people were going to the other side of the street because the sandwiches were better. But when he went over to somebody asked, why aren't you buying my sandwiches? The person responded, I'm not going to cross the street. <laughs> so the question is, how much does human behavior come down to basic laziness and taking the easy option without thinking? I love the sandwich story. That's so funny. <laughs> but what did he do? He uh, then went out and made chains of sandwich shops. So he made a, he basically made a convenience. He went to M&S and said, let's do a thousand of these everywhere. That was brilliant. To make it as convenient as possible. That was brilliant. And overall, the number one predictor of obesity is proximity to fast food restaurants. So we really are doing what's easy, but, and that's also, and these are studies in the US. I don't know if the rates are different in Ireland. Um, the number one predictor of voting is proximity to a voting station. We're not thinking about it. Usually it's not a conscious thing saying, I'm not going to cross the street. Um, but my perspective is that laziness is a much bigger driver. Laziness and also ease and friction, all of these are related, much more important than the values that we hold dear, like, um, like trust or also motivation and satisfaction that we think when we need to influence somebody that we have to appeal to their desire. But so often we just need to clear the path and get out of the way. So it's just removing the barriers of sale is as much as sort of persuading the sale itself. That's right, yeah. You've done quite a lot of research on food choices within companies. Firstly, why are major multinationals becoming more concerned with what their employees eat? And what have you learned in terms of influencing food choices and behaviors and outcomes of those experiments? The two big companies that I've worked with on this are Google and the food team at Google and also worked with um, Optum Health, which is part of United Healthcare, which is our biggest insurer in the U.S. And companies are concerned for uh, selfish and altruistic reasons. So the altruistic reason for wanting employees to be healthy is for them to be happy and feel good. And at Google, for example, the so employees call themselves Googlers, and they call new employees Nooglers. And the Nooglers complain about the Noogler 15, which is 15 pounds that you apocryphally gain in your first year of employment at Google, where it's legislated that you need to have free food within 150 feet of you at every single moment in the day, no matter where you are. So it's really easy to be snacking mindlessly. It is easy to gain weight. And I've seen this happen with my friends. I don't think it's 15 pounds and I don't think it's everybody. Um, and so when you're giving employees a benefit, the free food and they love it, and they're telling you that they're sad, that they're gaining weight, this is a good reason to help them make healthy choices. Um, and of course, the health insurance side, which is why we're working with United Healthcare, because 
food choices are obviously so intimately connected with long-term health outcomes, mm. then it's not just costs of health insurance that are higher for employees who aren't well, but um, and absenteeism, but presenteeism is the biggest cost and lost productivity when people aren't well. So it's almost that, that judge effect is, again, uh, keep them healthy, keep them well, and they'll work more productively. And the reason... For, I thought this was interesting. The reason that a lot of tech companies have free food is, this is what I've heard, but not from the decision makers, just so this is total rumor that I'm Mm. spreading, that um, they don't want their employees to be going to local restaurants and discussing company secrets. Mm. And also, they work longer hours. Mm. So this is the um, not as nice side of (laughs) Why do we want employees to have delicious free food? Well, multinationals become multinationals for a reason. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to active and passive decision-making, opt-in and opt-out policies seem to be an opportunity for some easy wins. Could you give some practical examples for leaders to implement in their organizations or even elements that you'd recommend looking at, like health insurance, all those sort of things? The, the decision about whether to make something an opt-out versus opt-in decision should basically be anytime there's a right thing to do that you're not going to face backlash. If you can make it an opt-out, that's the best thing for everybody. Um, And you might not know that you were going to be dealing with backlash until asking people, but you can ask them. And if people are feeling um, resistant because it feels like it's in your, say, the company's best interest instead of the employee's best interest, then they would be upset about it. And we're talking about food. An example that would go terribly of an opt-out policy would be you get an employee cafeteria, you get your entree, and then you get a, I was going to say side salad. They would probably be fine. But if they're used to fries, let's say they're used to fries on the side of their handy-dandy sandwich, and you just legislate a switch to a side salad, then they're going to be fearful. So how, what are the tactics to sort of uh, reduce that friction um, between the choices? Um, how do you make people buy into to those decisions rather than force it upon them? So opt-out policies aren't forcing anybody. So a lot of people think that you could legislate whatever you want as an opt-out policy and you're giving people the opportunity to opt out of it. Um, and in just like any other policy change, the discussions around it are going to be a big part of it. And it's going to depend on the context. Whatever you're doing to have employees or customers or whoever we're talking about feeling like they made a free choice. Have you ever happened to see Darren Brown, yes. the hypnotist? Okay. Yes. So he's he's a hypnotist. He's manipulating people. And he's constantly asking, are you making this choice freely? Right? Is this your free choice? And just the experience of having the free choice. I'm not saying we should be manipulating or hypnotizing people. But... In whatever the context is, they have to feel like they made a free choice. So then I want to move on to the area of sort of implementing customers and potential buyers. Can you first explain what the moment of truth is? The moment of truth is the time or the place or the context in which the other party, let's say it's the customer, will be the most receptive to your influence. So it might be that they really care about what you have to offer. Maybe you're solving an immediate problem that they have. If you are selling snow shovels in a blizzard, that's a moment of truth. It could also be that they are um, just thinking about this 
thinking about this topic because, say, um, end of the year, charitable donations go up, it's holiday times, taxes, all that. So this is a moment of truth for fundraising um, where some organizations do 50% of their fundraising. That one of the examples that I shared in the masterclass was the example of Procter & Gamble's Beirut marketing team working on laundry detergent. And they had to reach customers at a moment of truth, but there's no moment of truth where you just really, really care about laundry unless you're super weird. <laughs> and that's a very small market. And But they knew at least, okay, when customers are doing laundry, they're at least thinking about laundry detergent. We can't reach them by television advertising because they're doing laundry. You can't, you know, like radio ads, I don't know. Print ads, no. Billboard ads, definitely not. And these customers in Beirut, they live in high-rise buildings and they wash their clothes in the washing machine and then hang them out on the balcony to dry. And the marketing team had this brilliant creative campaign where they put ads on tops of buses so their customers could look out over their balconies and see these buses driving down in the streets below. It was fantastic. It was a great image as well. Well, I would imagine uh, a lot of people might think of Moments of Truth. They go... Okay, so that person does, does the washing. Let's look at their demographics. And then we'll pick a place right. where those people with the same demographics will go. But that's entirely missing the point, isn't it? It's it's more yeah. about that gator brain little moment. So how do leaders get into that mindset? Is it literally just by using their products? Is it is it by asking what sort of set of questions should they be asking themselves? So the questions about moments of truth are just when will the customer, when will the employee be interested in this topic, caring about it. But there's also when there will be times during the year, times during the day, like with the Israeli judges, this is also related to moments of truth because it's, and it's the negative moment of truth when right before lunch, judges exhausted, low blood sugar, and there's no possible way of getting through. So, um, there, there will be so many different factors related to timing and moments of truth. I think the biggest aha for people is probably that it's context that includes place and not just time, that both of these are related. Mm -hmm. And it's the context that determines whether we pay attention to this thing and also whether we can remember it because we were in some sort of heightened state of awareness. And... Um one of the key things we've been talking about is making it really easy for customers. And it was, I think it was one of the, your main points is how can we make it yeah. easier? So again, are there techniques or formalized processes that leaders can go through to see where they could remove those barriers of sale? Or is it again, is it about using your own product? Is it about going through the customer experience? A lot of times um, what we do with the Yale Center for Customer Insights is gain a lot of insights we couldn't have otherwise by spying on customers. So we send spies into their houses or their jobs or wherever they use these products because they may not realize what those obstacles are that they're facing because they could have created workarounds. Um, and they also, if you ask people to introspect, a lot of times they, they can't connect the dots because so many of these forces are unconscious. 
So it's just an impossible task. So here's one example um, that we wouldn't have known, and this was with the United Healthcare project that I worked on with MBA students. The MBA students were wanting to help figure out how to how should the United Healthcare and Optum Health Company support their clients and their customers in making healthy choices at home. And so they went to people's houses and looked through their kitchens and took pictures and talked to them about what and how and when and with whom they ate. And there was a massive difference between homes, kitchens of families that tended to be more on the obese side and families that tended to be more on the lean side. And they discovered when you looked in the fridge, there wasn't much of a difference at all which surprised me. But when you looked on the counter, there was a huge difference. And families on the lean side tended to have either healthy snacks like fruit or no food on the counter. And families on the heavier side tended to have um, treats and junk food and things like that, just so easily accessible, you didn't even have to open a cupboard. It plays into that sort of nudge theory where it's those small little choices that over time will make big, big impacts. Yeah. Um, so we've we've talked about how customers uh, make decisions with their gut instinct, but at a guess most marketing campaigns are designed rationally, often by committee. So how often does this lead to a disconnect, and how can a marketing team tap into that gut instinct? Is it all the ways you've been saying, or is there is there other ways that a marketing team can can really tap into that customer mindset? One thing that Mattel did really really well. Um, that I don't know of many other companies that do is they created actual store environments where we there would there'd be a fake retail store where they would put our, like my product on the shelf made up in packaging that looks real with actual competitor packaging mm-hmm. in an actual real planogram so that the experience it's not just a customer and it would be kids and their moms not just or their dads but usually their moms not just imagining which of these products would I pick, but they, the kid or kid and parents would get to pick something to go home with. And so you could see what those real effects were because the environment was much more real. And how should leaders test their marketing impact? And I'm talking about leaders now that wouldn't necessarily have a massive amount of marketing experience. So they're seeing their marketing teams. Their marketing teams are making lovely presentations to them on the impacts and all that sort of stuff. But how can a leader actually say, how this is working, it's not working, what are the questions they should ask? It's a really important question because most companies don't measure marketing much at all, as clearly you know by the question. Mm. And my colleagues at Yale and I are always trying to encourage people to experiment. And the time to experiment is before, it's obviously to plan it out before you do that thing that you think is great. So the question for the leader to ask of the marketing person would be how how are we going to know if your project is successful? And the marketing people are smart and they can figure it out, work on it together, but but to have decided how to measure their success before they ran the campaign. Yeah. The magic question, you brought it up. I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. Can you first explain the sort of the concept behind the magic question and what is the magic question? The magic question is my favorite, favorite influence technique of all of them. And in the masterclass this morning, we were talking about the gator brain influence forces of ease and attention and trust, and the magic question pulls all of them together. And it was actually my leadership coach who taught me the magic question by asking me over and over and over the question, what would it take? 
And what that question does when you ask somebody, what would it take? It shifts them from a, an evaluation and judgment mindset to a collaborative, a collaborative and um, creative mindset. It also is respecting them, respecting that they have knowledge that you don't have. They know what their obstacles are way more than you do. And it allows them to just lay out a roadmap. By the way, don't ask, what do I need to do? Because, and that's what a lot of people mm. do. And then they report back to me and they're like, oh, I used the magic question. I said, what do, you, what do I need to do? That's not it. It's what would it take because often the other party will take responsibility or it's just entirely out of both of your hands. And what would it take is a question that almost never has the other person saying nothing, it's impossible. Mm. But what do I need to do does not, not unusually have the other person saying nothing, it's impossible. And then finally, after the person has laid out the roadmap, here's what it would take. They've implicitly committed to supporting that outcome if these things, if these steps transpire. So they'll be on your side. It's so, so effective. Anybody listening, you should just try this immediately today. What would it take? Yes. So for senior leaders listening out there, we said again, they're nodding sagely and, and making rational plans to take advantage of these insights. Are they any less susceptible to all the eccentricity of the human brain than anyone else? I can't say what any individual leader has going on in his or her mind. But I did share this morning, and I have a lot more evidence, that the smartest, most successful, most effective people are definitely susceptible to all of this. I can certainly say that about my colleagues, but I shared some evidence about doctors and some evidence about judges. To, But st still, you and I were mentioning earlier, even after and even at break, some of these leaders are coming up to me and basically saying, but not me, right? Mm -hmm. But not me. So I don't expect anyone listening to this podcast to believe me that they are susceptible to these things, but I would ask them to be open-minded to the possibility, particularly because these influences are unconscious. So by definition, we can never experience them. Super, Zoe, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you.